Hey, this is Brutop with John and Forrest on Forrest, the Brewer. And I'm John, the Chemist. So what are we going to talk about today? Oh, today we're going to be talking about boiling your wort. Specifically, your sweet wort, and we're going to be making it into a bitter wort. Yep, we'll talk a little bit about the equipment you use for doing that, both for like the home brewer and at the large scale. We'll talk about alloys that are used and the different metals that are used in these apparatus. Yeah, and natural ways to filter out all those proteins. We'll talk about different ways of heating these kettles. We're also going to talk about... Ew, corrosion. We're going to talk a bit about heat transfer, transfer that heat to your wort. And then we're also going to talk about the hop. Why do we boil it in steps? Why every five minutes does it feel like you add hops to your beer? Why is that happening? We're going to get into that in pretty good detail. Um, so sit back and enjoy the ride. Hop on for the ride. Well, let's, I guess, start. let's start at the top. Yeah. Well, this is basically, how do you do what you're doing on a, the homebrewer scale in a macro scale? And so, you know, like when you stir at home, you know, to make sure everything's not burning how do you do that you know you can't just have 10 guys up there whatever like you have to have ways to do this yeah and it, it makes sense i thought this was really fascinating like we'll get into it later uh like kind of like my wart chiller where they have the copper tubes and everything that go in through everything and then it's just heated up with steam though and that's heating it up to boil it's like oh that's pretty smart yeah definitely Landrias are really cool. Um, so we're going to talk about that. Um, and that's like a fancy apparatus that uses copper tubing to heat up liquids. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, though, to the reason that we're boiling the wort's the same, home brewer and uh, micro brewer and macro scale brewers are doing it for the same reason, right? The, yeah, the basic reason, the very base reason, no matter where you're at, is to sanitize your wort. Depending what other things you want to do, like if you're adding hops, that's almost a pure American thing where all, almost all beers in America have hops in them. The first thing, so you, like you said, is sterilization, increasing Maillard reactions. Um, there's a bit of chemistry that you want to do that happens in the, in the boiling process. After the malting process is over, there's a lot of um, whole protein uh, molecules and compounds left over in your sweet wort are in the sweet wort that maybe you don't want to have in your fermentation process. And you need to be able to provide some nutrients for the yeast. It does a number of things when you're boiling. Like, yeah, I guess it's because it's also like, not only like denaturing the proteins, but it's getting rid of the, uh, like, so like say I have too much volume in my beer and I need to boil it down. So when you boil it down, you achieve your alcohol percentage that maybe you're looking for. And you're also degassing it too at the same time, reducing all that oxygen. You're trying to avoid oxidation at this point. And by just boiling out the, uh, the dissolved oxygen or the dissolved gases, like you're saying, uh, you kind of alter that chemistry, the oxidative chemistry that can occur. You reduce it. Correct. So you leave, you're going to leave some oxygen because naturally it's an open environment. 
for the most part, you're doing your boiling in. So when you're cooling your wort and stuff like that, you're going to reintroduce oxygen back to your sweet wort or your bitter wort at that point. When you're yeah, and I mean, yeast need oxygen to get going. Like that's how they reproduce with their oxygen. So without oxygen, that wouldn't happen. So I want to talk about chemicals again really quick, but you brought up a really good point um, that I'll get back to in just a second. So a couple other really interesting things that happen when uh, when the wort is being boiled is um, there's also um, other chemical species in the wort that you don't want, like dimethyl sulfide. The pH yeah. might not be balanced right. So two things kind of go into removing and changing these chemical factors. So one of them is like the formation of the trub. And what the trub is is kind of like a, a solid cake that forms uh, your wort when you're boiling it. And it's mix, It's a mix of these proteins, um, other chemicals, and it's solid. So it's kind of like a way to filter off some of these chemicals and some of these compounds you don't want because it becomes a solid and everybody knows that beer is probably mostly liquid, probably should be liquid. It should be. <laughs> yeah, it should be liquid when you lick it. When That's you, what we would call a beer. <laughs> and the pH needs to change. Like, like I was so, so we need to change the chemistry of our solution. We need to denature proteins. We need to degas it. We need to eliminate off flavors, and we need to change the pH. Another way of doing that is reducing the volume. Reducing the volume has a twofold impact. It has an impact on the pH on one hand which that, that adjusts your pH of your solution to what you need it to be for the yeast to be viable. Mm -hmm. um, other thing that happens is it adjusts the gravity. So it concentrates the sugars. So if you over sparged and you diluted your beer too much when you were sparging to come to volume, when yep. you were done with your sparging process, this gives you an opportunity to increase the gravity, which means increase the density or increase the amount of sugars that you're able, that are available for fermentation. Gives you basically higher alcohol at the end. So something else that was kind of interesting, you can do uh, during the boiling process to change the wort is add uh, clarifying agents. Oh, you, and you know, I hate using chemical clarifying agents, the worst. But you've used these some natural clarifying agents, I'm sure, right? Of course. and. Well, in its raw form, it's just called Irish moss. You just toss Irish moss in there, boil it up with it, collects all those proteins, and they clodulate or stick to that moss, drip right down to the bottom with all your moss. You just make sure to rack that off. You don't want that in your beer. So there's actually kind of cool chemistry behind the way Irish moss works. It's got a compound, a polymer called carrageenan in it. The carrageenan attracts some of the things that would make your wort cloudy, like the proteins that I've been bringing up so frequently, it traps those things and uh, let's say precipitates or turns them into solids and helps them become part of the trunk. So that uh, when we make something that's a liquid in solution, a solid, we call that precipitation. Yeah, and I, I just wanna stress and make clear, this isn't like your garden Irish moss that you're using like from the you should get brewing Irish moss. What's the difference? I'm, I'm sure it's the same stuff, but uh, I just know that this is clean and I know this is made specifically for the purpose that I'm using and it's not a fake moss because sometimes they could be plastic mosses that are painted 
or plastic that's painted green to look like moss. So yeah, I actually have a couple sacks of Irish moss here in my brew shelf. Well, I use that for my Sierra Nevada clone. Oh, I, sh I should have used it, but you know, I usually don't care to use it until I need something that I'm sh like a show beard. So this is usually beer that I'm making for myself. I don't care if there's haze in it. What we learned in our like second or third episode is realistically having the best ingredients produces the best beer. Absolutely correct. And when you start going to your garden, that's a wild introduction. So it's not necessarily the best for your brew. It's just a wild brew at that, you know, like maybe you're going a wild ale or something like that. See, but yeah. Probably for the American beer drinker, the most important part of the boil is adding hops. So you kind of add hops in stages um, because of the delicate chemistry that occurs in a hop and the types of compounds that end up in your beer at these stages. So when you're doing your boiling, you'll start with a, one type of hop at the beginning and you'll move on in the middle with another type. And then at the end, you'll add some other. And then after you've done fermenting, sometimes you add hops again and that's called like a dry hop and that's at room temperature. So you're in, in, in the brewing process, there's many different points that from the mashing process on and even in the mashing process, there are points to add hops. The time that you choose to add them determines the role that they're gonna play and the flavor of your beer. So I have a fun story right now because I've really wanted to utilize these hops that we have. Uh, I don't know the name of them. Uh, it's a secret to even me, but plus one utilizes them. Uh, and we decided to make a citrus IPA, very heavy with hops. So we did hops in the mash. We used hops at different times through the boil. And I have a couple stacks of hops ready with some peels of some citrus ready to go into the keg. And I'm gonna dry hop those and dry peel, I guess, for four days in the keg and then serve. It's going to be quite delightful. I have grapefruit in there. I have lemon in there, orange, and lime. All the peels only, because you don't want that bitter white part of the rind. So you just do the peels only. Don't do the juice. That's not needed. We're not making a wine here. We're not doing a, you know, a fruit beer. So oh, it's going to be amazing because the hops that we have have a very strong citrus lupulin scent, which is there that you'll find inside the little yellow glands when you break up a hop. That's basically the introduction to the boiling process. So we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to get into some of the equipment that uh, homebrewers use for boiling, which is fairly simple. And then mm -hmm. we'll discuss some of the considerations for uh, larger scale brewing processes um, and when we get back. So let's go grab a beer. Oh, and also with this uh, citrus IPA that I was talking to you about, I tried doing the, uh, what do you call it, hot liquor first. So having the hot water in there first and then pouring my grain onto it and it's slowly stirring. Completely different outcome. Really? Yeah, I, I'm very curious to see how the beer turns out because normally uh, when I pour the grain in first and then pour the water on top, it seems like the grain absorbs it. You know, it's just dry. It's very thick oatmeal. Uh, when I put the water in first and pour the grain on top, 
even though this was a cup like a half a pound more than we've used before it was watery i mean it came out well like we were at gravity at expected gravity and everything so huh can you describe like watery like the grain was watery instead of like oatmeal-y yeah so it, it just looked like soupy almost instead of being oatmeal yeah it was just yeah so usually i put the grain in the ton first and then put the water on top this time i put the water in the ton oh and we also did the uh vorlauf method too because i mentioned it and he seemed excited you know what the vorlauf is right yeah where you take some of it your sweet wort and pour it back on top mm -hmm. and let it you know settle again and then it's kind of filtering it out yeah we talked about vorlauf last week the only problem is with doing it at a home brewing scale you really don't want to settle like disturb that grain bed and when you have to reintroduce it, if you don't have the nice little sprayer things or whatever, you know, like the fancier equipment, you're literally, you're literally just taking your pot and pouring the, your sweet wort right on top again, which is disturbing the entire grain. Why bed, don't you know, siphon it? We thought about that, but it's really hot, <laughs> like really hot. Yeah. So we don't really want to hold on. I mean, I guess we could do that. That's not a bad idea. I guess we can wear like what is a knob glove and hold the tube and run it along. That's a good idea. That's not a bad idea. All right. It's going to be hard to clean, but a fish tank pump with a shower head attached to the end. Hey, John, it's you, and it's me, Forrest, on Brutox. So we're going to be talking about uh, the different types of metals. So I personally, you actually, I take it back. I told you earlier that I only use aluminum. I use aluminum and stainless steel. I have a nice little stainless steel cooking pot that I use for small little batches. But with my big brews, when I do a normal standard brew, I have an aluminum pot. Okay. And very often I will use both of these depending on my sparge batch size. Like when I have my sweet wort out, maybe I get my sweet wort out and I still want to sparge. So I'll sparge with that little stainless steel pot and I'll have my everything going into the, all the sweet wort going into my aluminum pot. Some materials you might use to boil water, boil your liquid would be like aluminum, copper, steel. Stainless steel is gonna is pretty important. That's an alloy. That's a, but that's an alloy. So we're kind of talking. Yeah. Steel's kind of an alloy, but not really because there's no other metals. It's iron and and carbon. But what are some properties that you want in a kettle when you're boiling? You want it to heat up pretty quickly. You want it to dissipate heat pretty quickly, both to transfer the heat into the liquid and to cool down fast, right? If it yep. insulates a lot, that's not going to be good because it's going to make it hard to, one, transfer heat into it from your heating source and to cool it down when you need to cool your wort down. And that's why ceramic is not advised because it takes a while to heat up. Aluminum is definitely useful for a consumer because of the cost. Right? And it's low corrosion too. Low corrosion. It's low weight too. And when you have to lift these, you know, seven to five gallons of wort or beer around or water, whatever you're doing at a time, the 
the lower the weight, the better. So with, with copper, uh, it has a lower heat capacity, but it has better thermal conductivity with it. So it can heat up your wart quicker, but it can't get as hot. So Forrest just said some key words, heat capacity and thermal conductivity. So the heat capacity is a measure of how much energy you have to put into something to heat it up. To heat it yes. up like a degree, you have to put a certain amount of energy into it. The thermal conductivity is how, we, how well the, the material dissipates heat. Or Correct. Yeah, like spreads out the heat, yeah, to whatever is it, yeah, whatever it's containing. And for our purpose, the work. Two key terms that we just picked up. So I guess on the big scale, they actually have to, like the big brew, actual brewers on a brewery, not the home brewer, they have to worry about the corrosion of parts and fittings and their, uh, their mm -hmm. tons that they're using. And so I guess the different type of metal really makes a difference because also the pH, you know, could be eating away if it's a high pH. Wait, low pH? Low pH could be eating away at the metals there. Aluminum forms an oxide layer on its surface that, that becomes like, so there's like aluminum metal and then an aluminum oxide layer. And that's like what we see when we look at aluminum, we're actually looking at aluminum oxide. And that prevents like that, that's like a passivation or a protective layer. So another weird metal that I don't, I don't feel like we cook with very much is steel. That's something that gets. Uh, it's so soft. Like but, who uses regular steel anymore? And it's corrosive. I don't know anyone, uh, like everything's stainless now, it's alloyed. Because there's like limitations to what you can do with all of the closer, like the more pure metals and like having some sort of alloy, I mean, throughout history has been an advantage and an advantage we use in our technology. And I mean, alloys of metals and materials like that show up everywhere in every aspect of our life from. Well, I know in plumbing, like no. just simply like from copper pipes, we now we use brass fittings as well. I mean, we still use copper, but yeah, brass fittings are, is an alloy that's made from copper and that's mm -hmm. a heavily used in the plumbing industry. Yeah, alloys are used in semiconductor devices. So your cell phone, your computer, there's alloys and metals in there. Everything pretty much nowadays, yeah. I've done a little, when I was an undergrad, I did a little bit of machining and when you're machining stainless steel, it's good to know what type of stainless steel you're machining because the different properties that the stainless steel has. So like the hardness of it will break your tool if it's too hard. One thing that's kind of interesting to know is that to make stainless steel more corrosive resistant, you want lower carbon count. Isn't Damascus steel uh, low in carbon? and isn't it like very hard and that's why it was sought after for swords in ancient times and the Ulfbert sword of Norse times was so spectacular because it was made from Damascus steel? I have no idea. So it had low carbon? I think it did. I, I would have to look into it. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% but I think that's what made it so sought after in like ancient times when you would have a uh, brittle steel weapons and vikings you know they'd shatter their swords or things would break but Ulfbert, this one blacksmith happened to get his hands on this middle eastern damascus steel and he made the quality of sword that was sought by kings 
because cool. it was like super hard, super resistant and to corrosion or whatever, something like that. So the reason we brought up metals and the reason we've been talking about stainless steel is that <laughs> yes, there are definitely metals that have properties that we want as far as heat transfer, but like the great blacksmith, Ulfert, we want something that resists corrosion. And there's a bunch of different ways that things can corrode. There's the corrosion that we know from like copper corroding or, or iron corroding, rust. Dude, galvanic corrosion's hard to explain. When you have two different metals touching and that causes corrosion because it causes an oxidation and a reduction of the metals. So what you're saying is because I have steel handles on my aluminum pot, you know, because the steel is, doesn't conduct heat as well, so it's cooler to grab those handles, there's a possibility of corrosion where that steel connects to the aluminum because of those two metals? Yeah, at those joints, you might notice that corrosion happens at a higher rate than on the pot itself where there's no metal contact, yes. And they have other things in the environment that can create, that can move these galvanic reactions along and oxygen can help, water can help. What so about the alloy galvanized steel? What is galvanized steel? So galvanization is like an electrochemical treatment, right? Yeah. You like put, it you, deposit, you deposit some sort of metal or alloy onto the surface of the metal through some electrochemical process to protect the metal. You know about corrosion. What about erosion? Where if you just have the constant flow that er erodes away from something, you know, just shreds away your still if you have a blast of water going in at it. So rivers erode. Yeah, that can still happen in your brewery equipment. So off the topic of corrosion, how would you go about heating and boiling up your wort, your sweet wort? Oh, at home, I'm just going to use my stove. And I don't know, it just seems like everything goes quicker doing it inside on the electric burners. Maybe because my electric burners are insane <laughs> where they get really hot. But also, I can't do it in vast quantities because anything over like seven gallon pot that I'm using right now, I feel might be too much weight for my glass burner. And it might crack it. Yeah. So if it's wettable, it has the surface has a high affinity for the liquid that you're putting on it. In our case, wort. Mm -hmm. A low affinity for these bubbles. Well, what happens is because it's wettable, the liquid goes to that surface really strongly. That surface is hot and it boils. The next thing when you're boiling, <clears throat> what you're doing is you're going from a liquid state to a, a vapor state, a gas state. Mm -hmm. And that gas state is leaving the surface while more liquid goes to the surface to get goes down to get and go back up, go back out as the vapor. Boil. Yeah. Whereas okay. if the sur if the liquid already has like is a, if the liquid has a low affinity for the surface, it won't. What will happen is it won't get close enough to the surface, or have good enough contact with the surface to actually heat it up effectively. Okay. And you won't get that. You'll get it's some even oil really. bubble formation, but because the surface isn't wettable, <clears throat> it won't have that higher affinity for the liquid. The bubbles won't leave the surface as rapidly and you'll end up forming like a barrier of like a bubble layer of slightly warmer a, a, a hotter region of bubble of your vapor and then you'll have like a a, 
another the next layer will be like your actual wart and your wart will just burn and you won't actually have these bubbles causing the mixture just stirring it yeah yeah action to happen so i thought this was really cool because this actually goes to my real work where i study um in my real work i'm a chemist who studies surface and interfacial properties of polymers and polymer interactions um in this case we're looking at a surface interaction between a metal and a liquid and that's cool so um yeah so the way that you can test if something's wettable realistically is find a way to make a uniform drop of water and then put a drop of water on it and the more that the the water beads up the more that the water beads up the less wettable it is, is. yeah okay the less wettable it is and the more that the water gets flat the more wettable it is so let's take a break so so when we left you we were starting to talk about the type of kettles you a uh, type of the types of kettles that uh large-scale brewing uh uses uh realistically there are two different types of kettles that are used and those are determined by the way that the heat is applied there's mm -hmm. a direct fire kettle and there's a steam fired kettle yeah so the home brewer uses the direct fire uh, because we use a direct heat source from the bottom we we're usually heating up our pots and pans or whatever you know directly from the bottom we don't have any jacket or insulation heating method like commercial I brewers i would be impressed <laughs> a home brewer had a steam setup but the more efficient way is using the steam fired kettles yes these are really cool so basically they have like a gap in between two layers of stainless steel. And in that gap, you fill it with steam and you can circulate the steam around and keep the, the wart hot from all sides, right? Yep, and this is probably the most common method that's in the US types of breweries because US breweries don't like the hot bottom heat source. They like this all around heat source. There's a lot more safety precautions than what you would do with your direct fire method at home where you can just use your propane stove. Well, let's be honest, we've been working with steam for centuries now since the you know, locomotive. So we know how to harness steam's power and utilize it to our bidding. And now brewers have crafted that technique of steam, you know, and how to utilize it to their best advantage. And at the end of the day, part of the boil is about achieving some sort of mixing. Well, also those heat sources are external heat sources too. Like they're coming from the outside of the vessel heating inwards. Yeah, and not really agitating that much just through the dis dissipation of heat. So to get around that, some other methods have been developed. One of them's called the calandria and it's an internal heating method. It looks like a rocket on the inside of a pot. And this thing has a lot of copper tubes that are, that are heated and as they heat, they they heat up the wart that's in them because it's immersed in the calandria is immersed in the wart so the tubes are filled with wart as the tubes heat they heat the wart up the hot wart rises and hits a cone at the top and is spread out over the top of the bulk wart and this motion of heating up the wart and pulling it up starts to create like a suction mm -hmm. the problem is you can't heat up the calandria until you've reached a certain volume of wart in your kettle. 
That's a siphon effect. It's like a siphon effect with heat. Yeah. Okay. Heat. So you need enough volume in order for those to be submerged to even start creating the siphon. Otherwise, it's just waste of damn time and a product, and you're just burning it with the valorization. But cleaning it seems very difficult. Oh, gosh. Every time, without question, you have to do it, and you have to get in there with brushes or scrubbers and the good cleaners every time, without question. They came up with a pretty good solution. So rather than heat the wort inside of the kettle, why not use mm. a pump? We have technology. Why not use the technology that is at their disposal? The brewers decided we're going to use a pump. So what they do, what the external calandria does is it pumps the wort out of the kettle from the bottom, runs the wort through a, the calandria on the the calandria on the outside of the kettle where it's the wort is heated and then the wort is then pushed back into the kettle where it it hits the cone and is spread it spread out onto the top of the wort. So does this vessel have a steam jacket too or would that be too much heat then having the calandria pump and spreading the wort and having a steam jacket? From my understanding, it would seem that the calandria is acting as the heat source. Using steam. Or electricity or something like that. However, you're heating that tubing, right? So that's probably why that's used mainly in the brew house because it's easier to clean and easier to maintain and get access to. In one of our other conversations, it might not have made it to, into an episode, but we had talked about it. We were talking about different interesting mashing methods, different mashing methods. And you had brought up New Belgium Brewery as having like an interesting method. And I don't mm -hmm. think it was, I don't think it dealt with mashing. I think it was this Merlin. It might have been their Merlin, like because they have their specialty wort. Yes. How they boil it, special. Yeah, the That's... wort, the, the Merlin is like a strange device. Yeah, so the Merlin system is cool. Or it's uh, basically so just spinning, spinning to so separate everything. That has like an interesting, uh, a way of boiling the wort by spreading the wort out over a cone in an upper vessel and heating the wort on that cone and generating steam and then pumping that back into the liquid. So that's kind of cool. So basically we've talked about the types of equipment you use in boiling. Realistically, a home brewer is using a pot with an external heating source, uh, a direct heating source from the bottom. A larger scale brewery is using a variation of that where they have a large kettle that holds 500 barrels of beer. An advancement of that is using a steam jacket where you're using steam to heat, you're using all steam around. in an inner layer to heat all around. And then a further advance, advancement and an interesting way of uh, boiling your wort would be using the calandria. I just want to mention one other thing. Like, if you, oh, did, there are old school methods, like direct fire methods, where you're actually using open fire to heat your vessels, and this would create a more smoky flavor. So, it's very, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of thought and preparation when the brewer considers, you know, what their heating method is and hmm. to what their final craft is going to be. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about hops, right? Let's talk about them. All right, so we're back. We're gonna talk about hops now. We've talked about all kinds of stuff. We started off the episode discussing 
why you need to boil. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why you need to boil. Two of the main reasons are probably sanitation and adding flavor to your beer. This is where you're going to add the flavor, what we're about to talk about, which is hops. If you're an American. As Forrest would say, because most of the beers produced in America have hops in them. Oh, so Forrest, yeah. I feel like every episode in one of our breaks, you run off into an into your closet off camera <laughs> over Zoom. Forrest is in Oregon. I'm in Michigan. I'm in Michigan. Um, <laughs> he questions it. <laughs> Almost every time Forrest either runs into his closet or runs out to his garage and comes back with one of a few things. Sometimes it's a bottle of beer. Sometimes <laughs> it's a louder ton. Sometimes it's hops, jars and jars of hops. So I'm going to let Forrest explain hops. Well, before I even get into the fundamentals of the hops, I just want to say what an amazing things hops are for beers because they can impart so many different types of flavors depending what you're looking for fruity earthy spicy uh even savory some of these hops are out there with those types of flavors so i just want to point that out garlic garlic flavored hops oh are you talking about summit hops i believe those are the summit hops maybe it's not summit but i believe it's summit that have the garlicky and the oniony flavor to them, yeah. Uh, oh my gosh, there's so many different hops and they just keep expanding and there's new varieties all the time. And there's certain varieties that you're not even allowed to know the name of or the scientific information of because they're the proprietor's secret. And if you're lucky enough to get your hands on those, you keep those as gold because then that's your, what you want to brew to because it's a secret that no one else can get their hands on. All right, what's a hop? A Tell hop me what a hop is. Because I, I think of it as a tiny pine cone that grows on grapevines is what I think of when I, I see a hop. Well, it's just like if you smoke marijuana. It's a little budded flower, a little pine cone flower, and that's going to be your good stuff. And with hops, just like marijuana, you want your females because the females are the ones that produce those big fatty pods, which are the flowers, those nice seeds where they contain inside them all those nice little yellow packed oils that we call lupulin. Yeah, the lupulin glands. Yeah, lupulin glands. And oh my goodness, that's where you can just rub your finger in the hops and just smell it. Like that's what breaks up and you just smell it. And that's what's gonna impart your flavor, your aromas, your bittering agents. And it's just a wide variety of things that are gonna be controlled with that. So these lupulin glands produce these oils, right? These oils are made up of like a variety of compounds. They're not like pure vegetable oil or cooking oil that you would find that's like uh, olive oil or something like that. They're like a, a mixture Herpings. of proteins, water, tannins, lipids, oils, sugars, yeah, alpha acids that are going to get converted. That's into the big one. Iso alpha acids that will become our bittering agents. Mm-hmm. So out of these lists of ingredients, I think the the important stuff to highlight would be like volatile oils, limonene, pinene, stuff like that. Things that give you your uh, citrus flavors. When you're yep. looking for flavor and aroma with your hops, you're adding these later in the boil so that you don't 
boil off these compounds. Or sometimes even after the boil is done, you might dry hop with them just to impart that flavor. Then the alpha acids. Yeah, so in short, this is how bitter your beer will become. And so if you have a hop that is very high in volatile oils and very low in alpha acid, you don't want to add that at the beginning of your beer because it's not going to be a very bittering hop. It's more of a flavoring hop or aroma hop. So if you have a, a cascade hop, for instance, which is very high alpha, that's very good for the boil very early on because that's going to be a very good bittering hop. Whereas you have these specialty hops like the summits, you want to add those in later on because that's going to be the flavor and the aroma, like you were saying, towards the end. In one case, you want to add them really early on because they have like a higher concentration of what we're calling alpha acids. And these alpha acids undergo chemistry over time with heat and they convert into what? Iso alpha acids. And these iso alpha acids are what part gives you that, that bitter taste. Whereas when you have higher in the volatile organic compounds that you want, you'll add those later in the boil. Correct. I mean, just basically, if you want to use those lower alpha acid hops as your bittering hops, you're going to have to add a whole lot more of those into your wort for your boil. I think it's really important to emphasize when a brewer is adding hops, they're adding them multiple times during the boil and sometimes after the boil to get the full complexity that a hop has to offer. Basically, <clears throat> it's very inefficient using hops the way we do, even if it's in its uh, pellet form. So just know you're not getting every last little bit. Like those hops could probably be used again, but. So rather than adding the plant version or a pellet version of milled hops, but still plant material, they basically extract the plant material in a laboratory and then convert the alpha acids into the iso alpha acids um, and able to bitter the beer later on in the brewing process than at the beginning of the boil, which you would need with a tradi traditional bittering hop. Have you actually tried a beer that's made from modified hop oil? So I think that there are some beers on the shelf that you can buy and they kind of taste like they didn't get rid of all of the volatile organics and they have a very strong pine flavor because of it. Mm -hmm. Pine, pine. Okay. Well, it, it is a much more efficient method of getting, extracting the hop essence by doing this through the lab. So where I was saying like you only get about maybe 30 to 35% of your hop when you're throwing it in, in the boil through the lab, you're getting closer to 40, 45%. So it is much more concentrate. Like you're saying, you know, of those oils that you may not necessarily be wanting. I don't know that they're distilling out the terpenes from this. And so when you're just giving me hop oil that still has that alpha acid, I'm still pretty sure that you're giving me the volatile oils too with all those terpenes in there. So you're not purely bittering. Mm -hmm. One thing that I thought was cool is that if your beer comes out with the wrong bitterness, you can add it, you can adjust your beer really late in the brewing process. Oh yeah, well as long as it was under bittered. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was actually fascinating, but I also thought that uh, was really cool about using this hop oil. Now it's making me want to try to get some and just, you know, test it out, see what's going on with it. So I can get an opinion because it says uh, it's uh, light stable, 
So you don't ha necessarily have to be using the dark beers, you know, to protect it from getting skunky flavored, but also it helps enhance the foam on your head. I have a nice head, but maybe three minutes in, it's gone where I want that show head to last. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of ways that you could use it and try it and it could be like a good resource to have on hand once you really know like once you've mastered how it works yeah what you it is use it as like a cool resource and you could design recipes that incorporate it like we spent a lot of the previous episodes talking about how to get the sugar that you need to ferment into beer into the mm -hmm. into the liquid um there's a whole variety of ways of doing that and those things do alter the flavor of the beer at the end of the day, especially if you're doing a beer that doesn't have hops. Like, so for me, I've only done extract brewing and this is where I feel like I get to be a brewer. Um, where if you're doing full grain, you get to, you know, make your mash and, you know, change it up brewing process. Exactly. Change it up some because you get to control your hops. So I think we're done here. Yeah, we're, we're done. Yeah, next time we're going to be talking about the cooling and fermenting process. And then adding yeast, I guess, or whatever to do to make the alcohol. Make Yeah, basically getting wort ready to make it into beer. That's the next step. Turn our bitter wort into beer. All right, thanks for listening to Brew Talk with John and Forrest. Have a great time. <laughs>